you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but what also eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Good morning. Um, It's great to see you all here today. Uh, Let me pray, then let's jump into our sermon for today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you that you have gathered us together through the goodness of your grace towards us. Thank you that we have the opportunity to this morning to hear you speak to us through your word. I pray you would be working in our hearts, Holy Spirit, because we know that uh, my mouth, my words, my brain are not capable of transforming or saving anyone but we are completely reliant upon you, Holy Spirit, to do that work in our hearts. We ask that as we come to this text today, would you uh, show us what it means? Would you uh, fix our eyes and our hearts on yourself and your glory? And may we follow your word uh, 
with diligence and a love for you. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, a little bit of a recap, because we did have a break from 2 Corinthians last week. Uh, Paul is writing 2 Corinthians, uh, so it's a, another letter to the church in Corinth, uh, and it's most likely the fourth letter that he has written to these Corinthian Christians, and he's writing it to both celebrate, but also re-encourage them after hearing uh, good reports. Uh, and we'll hear a bit about those good reports today. And he in this letter, he gives the reasons for why his travel plans had to change. And he highlights that it's because he is so gospel-shaped, he's so bound to the mission of the gospel, that that's all that matters. And more than trying to repair his own reputation in the eyes of man, what he's really trying to do with the letter of 2 Corinthians is ensure uh, that the Corinthians have their heart and minds fixed on Christ and that their relationship is repaired to Jesus and the true gospel. And then here in chapter 7, Paul's actually going to circle back to what has been named the severe letter, uh, which he wrote instead of uh, going back to do another face-to-face painful visit. Uh, And here we will see that Paul is celebrating the gospel work that was achieved through that severe letter. If you've got your uh, ESV Bible, uh, there's a good chance that at the top of this section, uh, 7 verse 2 through to 16, there's a little title at the top which says, Paul's Joy, uh, which is incredibly helpful because that's kind of the interpretive key to this whole section. Uh, It sort of very easily helps us understand uh, what's going on. And so let's um, jump into our text today. Let me read verse 2 through to 4, where Paul says, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you, I have great pride in you, I am filled with comfort in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy." These are opening verses work like a bit of a preface to our passage this morning. Paul's articulating his genuine love for these Corinthians and his integrity to his love for them and his ministry to them. And we see that he has true joy because of true unity. And it's built upon three foundations that he walks through in this text, which are brotherly and sisterly affection speaking the truth in love and true repentance. I'm thankful to Gary Miller's commentary uh, for giving me the idea of this illustration. Because Gary Miller, in his commentary, he uses a reference to a, a centuries-old novel called Pilgrim's Progress by the Puritan uh, John Bunyan. Uh, and in this story, there is a character called Christian, Uh, And Christian, right at the beginning of this story, realises his need for salvation. He realises that his uh, his city is about to be destroyed and he needs to get out from that city and find salvation. However, it's worth noting that in the opening pages of this story, we're told uh, that Christian knows he has a heavy burden on his back and that his goal is to get to the celestial city. 
in his journey to the celestial city carrying his heavy burden, uh, there's a couple of uh, really interesting things to note, which is that he uh, has people come around him who are both encouraging, but also there are those who are super discouraging. Uh, But also there are a few critical things that happen through this journey as he's on his way to the celestial city and they're going to help us to understand what Paul's talking about today. Uh, We see uh, with Christian that these same three things that I've just mentioned radically help him on his journey. So firstly, brotherly and sisterly affection. Uh, Verse 5, it says, For when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Now, if we remember back to chapter 2, Paul told his readers that when he didn't find Titus in Troas, he went on to Macedonia to try to find him because of his anxiety for the safety of his brother Titus. And Paul changed his travel plans uh, because he was so concerned about Titus and also because he knew that in being reunited with Titus, he would be encouraged. And so not only is Paul anxious for Titus's safety, but on the journey, they face more persecution for the gospel. And this persecution is both external, like people making it hard for them externally, but also internally, the internal fears and anxieties and upsets that Paul and his ministry fellows are facing. And so not only... um, Yeah, so Paul is... facing it on the outside, he's facing it on the inside. And I hope that we can see today that Paul was truly suffering. That suffering hardships, either because of enemies external or just the the world or just our sin, is the normal experience of the Christian in this life. As you follow Christian's journey in Pilgrim's Progress, it's interesting to note that he's most encouraged and joyful with others. Even when faced with great challenges and difficulties, and as you read the book, it's uh, obvious how intense some of these hardships are for Christian to walk through. But God sends other characters, like the first one he meets called Evangelist, or another character, Faithful, or another character, Hopeful, And John Bunyan, uh, because he uh, just loves people so much, named the characters after what they bring to these relationships. And so it's really easy to understand who these characters are and what they're going to bring to the story. And they come into Christian's journey at key times of hardship and their companionship and encouragement to Christian is monumental. See what happens in verse 6. Paul says, but God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. In God's providence, he orchestrates for Paul to meet Titus in Macedonia. Our God of comfort comforted Paul through the meeting of a brother, through the being brought into the presence of a brother, a Christian brother who loved Paul and was considered a friend and confidant. One of the ESV study Bibles that I was reading, uh, the little sermons that they have in there, it actually applies uh, this entire passage to the concept of depression in ministry. 
and talks about how, you know, in this passage we see God actually sets things up very particularly so that uh, those who are in ministry, whether that's vocational like me or you, uh, volunteers, lay uh, members in their ministries, maybe in your workplace or in your families, wherever it might be, noting that each and every one of us will face great lows in our ministry lives. This is an incredibly encouraging chapter to understand how God gets around you and I uh, for our joy through true unity. And I can identify with that. It doesn't take much for me to feel deflated or defeated as a pastor. And Hannah can attest to the dumps I get myself into from time to time. Um, I actually heard a funny story in these uh, sermons that Martin Luther had a very melancholy disposition, the reformer Martin Luther, and he um, would quite often, after a Sunday, feel so deflated and defla- uh, defeated and deflated, he'd uh, just go and get into bed like he was sick. And one day, his wife got over it, and she dressed in like mourning garments and walked in and just treated him like he was dead. And he was like, "What are you doing?" And he's like, "Well, you may as well be dead. You're so like you're so lifeless and boring. I'm just going to pretend you're dead." Um, and it's just a, a great overreaction to a very dramatic man. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if one day Hannah goes and buys mourning garments just to poke fun at how easily upset I get. Uh, but sometimes uh, uh, I've learnt uh, is that even when I really don't like it, like I'd rather a poke in the eye with a hot stick, it's in those times that being around brothers and sisters in Christ is the exact medicine that God has prescribed for me in his gospel goodness to his people. I'm blessed as often as we can make it happen that uh, Nathan Smith and I get to catch up for Wednesday morning coffee uh, and there have been so many times where I was hoping that he'd message me at like 6.30am saying, sorry mate, just can't make it. Um, and then it'd be on him and I'd feel great about myself. Um, but every single time we do get to make this coffee happen, no matter how down I might feel, no matter how deflated I might feel, having that coffee, uh, having those conversations, praying together, being in God's Word together, uh, I come away from that recharged, re-energized to keep serving Jesus again. And I'm encouraged, uh, even just Nathan's presence with me, just another brother in the faith sitting there having coffee in a cafe uh, is enough to remind me that God is good, Uh, that, yeah, I'm feeling a bit down in the dumps, uh, but God is working through His Word, God is working through His Spirit to see people's lives changed and transformed, uh, and that's what my job is about. Uh, And so I'm thankful to God that He puts people in our world to encourage us, to point us back to the fact that God is the God of comfort, and God comforted Paul in this coming of Titus, and He has given you and me the means of comfort by having one another. The call here is to see each other for the gift that God has made us all to one another and to pursue it, to be available for one another, to be present for one another, to fight the urge inside most of us to isolate and self-medicate, but to trust God's good gospel means of grace is sufficient. I think we've um, quoted John 13, 35 a number of times already in this 2 Corinthians series, uh, but I'm going to do it again. Jesus says that it is by our love for one another that the world will know 
that we are His disciples, that we belong to God. Not when we've got our lives together, whatever that means, not when we're rich or healthy or socially acceptable, not when we've accomplished great things in our careers or our study, but when we love each other in the community of faith so evidently that the world notices it. And Paul doesn't just stop at uh, Titus's coming to him, but also it's what Titus said, the report that he brought of the gospel effectiveness of that severe letter. Which brings me to my second point, true joy in true unity through speaking the truth in love. Uh, Verse 7, he continues, he says, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Again, we we saw in in chapter 2 that Paul sent this severe letter and he did that instead of going and making another painful visit. So come back with me uh, in 2 Corinthians to chapter 2. 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 2, and just reading verse 3 and 4, Paul says, And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. In other words, he was fully expecting that the last time he went back there, he was going to walk into an environment of unity, that there would be true joy in true unity, but it's obvious to him from that visit that they don't have unity. And so he writes this letter. Uh, Verse 4, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul didn't write this letter for the purpose of causing pain or grief, as he calls it in chapter 7, but for the purpose of speaking the truth in love. Now, we don't have a, a copy of that severe letter, but it's obvious that he called out sin. He had already called out sexual promiscuity uh, that was prevalent in the church back in 1 Corinthians. And according to 2 Corinthians 13, in the severe letter, he called out the false teachers and the false, uh, the false teachers and their false gospel message. And he was also calling out their growing distrust of Jesus and their turning their backs on the Apostle Paul. And these were not easy things for him to call out. They were painful for Paul to write, painful for the church to hear and be confronted by also. And it's clear that Paul's severe letter was hard for the people to hear it, cut against their consciences, against their conveniences and their tolerances for one another. Here in the uh, Corinthian church, like our modern church, is that they had bought into the lie that tolerance is true love. Matt Chandler spoke to this a little bit last Sunday 
in his sermon and he, uh, he talked about how the culture of our church today is so tolerant of sin and rebellion against God. And I think this is for two primary reasons. One, we have such a low view of sin how offensive it is to a holy God and how destructive it actually is to us and our brothers and sisters. And two, our pride gets in the way of truly loving our brothers and sisters. Oh, more tissues. Thank you very much. Now, we'd prefer superficial peace over gospel transformation. Matt used the example of tolerating each other's sin being likened to uh, tolerating a child running onto a busy highway. We know the danger, but we don't really love our church family well enough to call them back from that busy highway, knowing how dangerous it is. In our story, The Pilgrim's Progress, the character evangelist is a great example of speaking the truth in love. When Christian is thrown off the path by Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Evangelist catches up with Christian and through strong but loving words, draws Christian's eyes back to the goal of meeting Christ and of arriving at the celestial city. And we see that the report that Titus brought, that people had repented, they had turned from false teaching and that that brought Paul joy. Paul hears that the truth that he spoke in love to the Corinthians had created, had done its gospel work in their hearts. They had repented uh, of their sin, of the, the, the sin of their tolerance to the sin in that church community, and they'd put some things in place. So they had put the, uh, the perpetrators under church discipline. They had, um, they had put the false teachers out of the church, and they were uh, recommitting their love to Paul and the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what is the call for us today? Or maybe what's the cost? What is it to speak the truth in love to one another? To point one another to gospel realities? I think from our passage, we see that it's to realize that it will cause grief. Confronting one another in love in the gospel hurts. It hurts our pride and it hurts our flesh which loves to sin. And yet as verse 9 ends, by speaking the truth in love, we trust God that each of us will feel a godly grief. And we're encouraged that we are not the first to feel this godly grief, this sorrow, but Jesus, our Saviour, took upon Himself the full weight of our sorrows. And we can be grieved to repentance because Christ was first grieved for us. As Isaiah the prophet says of Jesus 500 years before His birth in Isaiah 53, 4, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So we can see that Paul is okay with godly grief because it produces a repentance that leads to salvation, which is my third point for this morning, true joy in true unity through true repentance. Verse 10, Paul says, For godly grief produces a repentance 
that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, this is just another classic Paul moment, uh, to just casually drop a major Christian doctrine into his letter without really diving into it or explaining it. However, it is the anchor of this passage, and so it would be remiss of us not to dive in a little bit this morning. To ask the question, what is godly grief compared to worldly grief? Why does Paul say in verse 10 that godly grief leads to uh, a, a salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death? And so in an effort to try and get my head around this, uh, the last couple of weeks I've been reading The Doctrine of Repentance by Thomas Watson, a Puritan preacher in like 17th century England. And while he says many helpful things in this book, uh, and I think I'm even going to post the PDF in our Facebook group uh, if you dare to go and have a read of it, um, I think this one paragraph to quote from him opens our eyes sufficiently to what Paul is speaking about here. Watson says... True leaving of sin is when the acts of sin cease because of the infusion of a principle of grace, just as it ceases to be dark when there is an infusion of light. Watson contrasts godly grief with worldly grief by pointing out that worldly grief or sorrow is me-focused, while godly grief is God and others-focused. Worldly grief produces death because it is not a true turning from sin towards something greater. Worldly grief is a, a grieving for having to turn from sin. It's having to turn from sin because maybe a fear of punishment or uh, reputational damage. Maybe we've realized that our sin is causing us ill health both physically and mentally or maybe you've realized that you're cutting your sin out would cost, sorry, that your sinning is costing you too much economically. Now, any of these reasons should be great secondary reasons for true repentance. If we grieve and repent from sin to avoid those issues alone, our hearts have not been transformed. But if godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, something much more radical has to take place. What we need, as Watson says, is an infusion of the principle of grace. And this is what it means. Unless God, through His Holy Spirit, by the truth of His Word, infuses grace into our sin-broken hearts, we will never truly repent. True repentance is an act of God's saving grace upon us. Maybe you're unfamiliar with the word repentance. In short, it's a, a turning from sin and leaving sin behind. Or as the Bible teacher J.I. Packer says, repentance means changing one's mind so that one's views, goals and ways are changed and one's whole life is lived differently. True repentance comes about through godly sorrow, which is a recognition of our offending our good and holy heavenly Father. It's acknowledging and confessing that we are sinners, but it's also knowing and trusting that Jesus has reconciled us to God. And He's done this through His perfect life, 
lived on our behalf. It's done through his sacrificial death on the cross, dying the death that you and I deserve to die for our sin. And it's done through his triumphant resurrection from the grave where he's gifting life and light to his people, the very light and life that we require in order to truly repent before our Heavenly Father. And because of these great gospel truths, we have the faith required to do so. The uh, Heidelberg Catechism, which is a collection of Christian teachings put in Q&A format, it helpfully explains what repentance looks like. It's across three questions, so bear with me. The uh, first question is, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? Two things, the dying away of the old self and the rising of life to the new. Secondly, it asks, what is the dying away of the old self? to be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it? And what is the rising to life of the new self? Wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. This morning we've seen that Paul's true joy comes about through true unity. He didn't have that true unity back in his first painful visit. He walked into that church environment. People were against him. There was no brotherly or sisterly affection for him. There was no brothers and sisters speaking the truth in love to each other. There was no call through the gospel to true repentance. But now off the back of this, we've seen that Titus was sent to him to comfort him. A a beautiful picture of God gifting you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, to strengthen us and encourage us. That the, the speaking truth in love that Paul did through the severe letter had worked its gospel work. It had met people's hearts. It had revealed to them their sin and their wrong. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, it had led them to true repentance all sort of resounding and crescendoing in uh, true unity within that body and with the Apostle Paul, resulting in their true joy. It's really interesting that in the final verses of our passage, at the end of verse 13, Paul says, um, besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Church, I think a part of the final word of our passage this morning is that we are often searching so deeply and hard in all the wrong places for true refreshment, for true true joy, to be fully made alive again, to feel that uh, God or something in this world is on our side, that something's finally going right and we look for it in all the places where God's Word doesn't say that it is. We look for it in all sorts of different ways. We look for it maybe in uh, sort of following the world's means of sort of over-medicalization. We look at it uh, through uh, maybe trying to uh, get the dopamine hit, thinking that if I could just feel good, then I'll feel joy. 
Now, this is not a word against GPs. This is not a word against uh, therapy. This is not a word against taking the right medications uh, and, and doing things wisely. But this is a word to understand that God has given us very simple, basic gospel means of being encouraged, of finding true joy in true unity. And it's by knowing that we have one another. Firstly, it's to know that we have one another. Secondly, it's to be available for one another. If you're anything like me, the only thing you want to do after church is go home and sit on the couch and watch the football and pray that no one wants to talk to you. (laughs) That's my ideal Sunday, just to be really honest with you all. (laughs) And my hope and prayer is that all of you all would upset that incredibly. We need to see the need for loving one another and that's the cost of loving one another is putting ourselves outside of our comfort zones. It's of recognising that my life is not about me and my time, it's about how do I come around the body of Christ. It's realising the cost of speaking the truth in love is that it is going to hurt. It's painful for the person giving the message, it's definitely painful for the person receiving the message but when our hearts are in that place of trying to point our brothers and sisters to the goodness and glory of Jesus Christ, we know that even though it might produce grief, that grief is for a little while, but that it leads in uh, God's goodness and providence to true repentance. And in true repentance, we are bringing those things to God and we are laying them at His feet and we are saying, because of the gospel work that He has done on our behalf, because He has rescued us by His grace, He has gifted us His Holy Spirit, we can bring these things that we are enslaved and chained to before the very throne of God and find freedom and fullness in our life in Jesus. As the band comes this morning, I want to read how this certain portion of uh, the story for Christian, um, he gets to a bit of a milestone in his journey to the celestial city. And it sort of encapsulates uh, as we realise that he's been brought to this point through the kind but strong words of many uh, different brothers along the journey. Uh, And also, as we'll see in just a moment, the the recognition and realisation of true repentance. Um, So, let me read. Now, I saw in my dream Christian walking briskly up a highway, fenced on both sides with a high wall. He began to run, though he could not run fast because of the load on his back. On the top of the hill, he came to a cross. Just as he got to the cross, his burden came loose dropped from his shoulders and went tumbling down the hill. It fell into an open grave and I saw it no more. Now Christian's heart was light. He had found relief from his burden. He said to himself, he has given me rest by his sorrows and life by his death. He stood gazing at the cross, wondering how the sight of the cross could so relieve one from guilt and shame. He no longer felt guilty of anything, His conscience told him that all his sins were forgiven. He now felt innocent, clean, happy and free. He knew his sins had all been paid for by the death of the one who died on the cross. They were gone, buried in the Saviour's tomb and God would remember them against him no more forever. He was so thankful and so full of joy that the tears began to flow. 
as he stood looking at the cross, weeping for joy, three celestial beings stood near. They greeted him with, peace be unto thee, the first said. Your sins are forgiven, the second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with garments white and clean. The third put a mark on his forehead and gave him a book to read on the way and for identification at the celestial gate. Then Christian leapt for joy and he went on his way singing. Church, we've been gifted all that we need in Christ to walk from here this morning, leaping with joy and singing in our hearts, knowing that God has brought us into a community of faith to love one another, to hold one another, to be with one another, to encourage one another, to speak the truth in love to one another, knowing and praying and trusting that it will lead each of us to godly sorrow, a a true recognition of our wrong before a good and holy God and drawing us to true repentance where we would lay those things down at the foot of the cross and turn to Jesus. Let me pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning in your word. Thank you for your encouragement to us to trust in your good gospel means of our true joy in true unity. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we go about the rest of our weeks that you would be helping us to think through being present for one another, to love one another, to not isolate ourselves, but to be with your people, to speak gospel truths in love to one another and to trust you that you are gifting us and gracing us to truly repent and come before your presence. We thank you that you are so good and kind to us. We praise you in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.